0: are presently considering the fourth term of communion and I'll read that for you that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person and in consistency with this that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the word of God. Last time that we addressed the terms of communion we considered under this fourth term of communion the duty of social covenanting first of all and then we considered the topic of the Perpetual Obligation of Social Covenanting. My plan for this evening is to present some of the common objections to the Perpetual Obligation of Social Covenanting. Next time we meet we will focus our attention upon the National Covenant, the following time upon the Solemn and Covenant and then the Last uh, meeting on this term of communion, we'll consider the Arkansas renovation. So we still have uh, approximately uh, three more weeks to uh, consider this fourth term of communion. It is probably the least uh, understood of the terms of communion, and I think for that reason we need to spend a little more time discussing it. So we're going to look at about eight, I've got eight common objections to the perpetual obligation, social covenanting, and uh, you may have others that you want to, uh, that you have heard that you may want to mention at the conclusion of our study, but we'll go with these eight in our time uh, uh, that we have devoted to the lesson. The first objection is this. Deuteronomy 23.22 says it is not a sin to refrain from bowing unto the Lord. Thus it seems to be a personal and voluntary act of worship, worship which no man can require of another person. Deuteronomy 23:22 says but if thou shalt forbear to vow it shall be no sin in thee In other words if you if you refrain from vowing it's no sin And the response to this uh, objection as it's as it's framed is this first This verse does not teach that a lawful social covenant previously made does not bind descendants. That's not what the verse is teaching. It does not address the issue of perpetual obligation of lawful covenants at all. Nor does Deuteronomy 23.22 make covenanting optional in the Christian life so we can say that first of all this verse does not make social covenanting does not make social covenanting optional in any sense the second thing we would say about uh, Deuteronomy 23:22 is this what is addressed here in this passage is refraining from making vows to god for which either his word or his providence give no warrant. That's the issue that's being addressed. Making vows where there is no warrant from God's word or from God's providence to be able to fulfill and keep vows that are made. Thus, we ought never to vow to do what is forbidden in God's word. Or anything that would hinder any duty that's commanded in God's word. For example, in Acts 23, verses 12 through 14, there uh, the uh, scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, they enter into a vow to conspire to take Saul's life. They enter into a covenant. They covenant not to eat or drink until Paul uh, is uh, uh, destroyed. Now, that's a, a vow or a covenant forbidden in God's word. Uh, in this particular, um, in this particular uh, circumstance, we can say very legitimately, "If thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee." God's, God has forbidden anything that is contrary to his word to be vowed or sworn. Or we might also use as, a, uh, as an illustration a vow to own allegiance to, uh, to civil or ecclesiastical constitutions that are contrary to the law of God we cannot swear allegiance to. If constitutions, whether of a civil nature or of an ecclesiastical nature, are contrary to the word of God, we cannot own them as lawful constitutions and say we will swear allegiance to them. We must forbear in that circumstance to take vows, to own those kinds of constitutions that would not be sinful to forbear in those circumstances because it's contrary to the word of God. Because in unlawful constitutions, whether they're civil or ecclesiastical, and I'm thinking in particular of um, constitutions, uh, say civil, first of all, uh, in civil constitutions that protect, defend the right for other false for false religions to exist they have in effect established by law false religions within a country because they have not said this is the one true religion any other religion outside of this religion is uh, false. They've not done that. Rather they have in effect, est- effect they have established pluralism so that so that all religions are defended within a particular nation. That is promoting uh, a heresy. It's defending false teaching by a civil constitution. We cannot, as Christians, we cannot own a constitution that protects the one true religion along with every other false religion. Makes no distinction between the truth and error. You see, uh, questions 108 and 109 in the larger catechism uh, specifically call us to remove all monuments of idolatry. Just read very quickly what it says. What are the duties required in the second commandment? I'll not read the whole thing, but uh, one of the duties required in the Second Commandment, or a few of the duties, are stated as this, uh, as also the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. Now, the civil magistrate is bound by that particular commandment. That's a moral commandment. The parliament is bound by that commandment. The Congress of the United States is bound by that commandment. They are obligated to remove all monuments of idolatry. Their constitution, the Constitution of the U.S. and Canada protects monuments of idolatry. We cannot therefore pledge allegiance to that civil magistrate or to that constitution. Likewise, in church constitutions, that defend, promote uh, false teaching. We cannot swear allegiance as well to those kinds of constitutions uh, of an ecclesiastical nature either. So that would be sin. We ought to forbear in those circumstances and situations. Uh, Similarly, We ought not to vow to do what we are not able in God's providence to do and have no promise from God that he will enable us to do. I remember quite a few years ago, an experience, uh, uh, this was uh, in uh, my charismatic days. I remember a church I was attending and uh, they were having a fundraiser to build a building, a brand new building and they brought in this evangelist who promoted uh, uh, this building to be uh, built and, and he had an architectural uh, design of the building and he had put uh, a hundred, um, uh, I forget how many pieces, but he had covered the whole, the whole uh, picture of this building like a, like a puzzle uh, with various pieces uh, to the puzzle. And uh, he said that all of those who um, would pledge a thousand dollars were to come and to take a piece of that puzzle off until the full picture was revealed. And he said, uh, "Doesn't matter how old you are, you know, I'm just uh, calling people to to come forward, take this step of faith." And uh, and he had. Uh, young people 14, 15, 16 years old, going up, pledging to a t- thousand uh, dollars and uh, taking uh, a piece of this puzzle out uh, of this picture. Now, um, I dare say uh, that's not a covenant or a vow or a promise that a child, uh, can can expect to meet that God would provide a thousand dollars that God promises that he will provide a thousand dollars in that kind of a circumstance he ought to forbear in other words in that circumstance God has not promised to provide that or another case of uh, within god 's providence are vows of celibacy. Um, perpetual vows of sub, uh, celibacy would be another uh, situation in which God uh, has not promised uh, to, uh, to a particular person that he will give them the grace for the rest of their life to do that. Now, they may have uh, what we uh, believe to be a gift of celibacy. That person may believe in his own heart that he will never or she will never marry, but they ought not to take a vow uh, to, that, uh, 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 to do that. Rather, if that God grants, continues to grant them the grace, they live one day at a time and that type of thing, but they ought not to take a vow because again, in God's providence, they do not know whether God has in fact, uh, uh, will give them that grace until uh, they finally die. Uh, Thirdly, still considering Deuteronomy 23.22 as an objection, uh, which says, but if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee, an objection that is offered to the perpetual obligation of social covenanting. A third response is, to the contrary, many vows are not optional for the Christian. Personal covenants, as in Job 31.1, where Job talks about covenanting with his eyes, not to look upon a virgin. You see, we ought to use personal covenanting uh, throughout our Christian life uh, as a means of grace uh, to assist us in overcoming various sins, uh, to show our gratitude to God uh, for ways in which He has delivered us, and uh, always using uh, covenanting in that circumstance. Uh, as um, a means to keep God's moral commandments. And so, uh, certainly, it ought not to be optional in any of those circumstances. Baptismal vows certainly are not optional. Renewal of vows at the Lord's Supper. uh, When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we ought to be renewing our, our vows to the Lord. That's not optional. National covenants, as in Josiah's covenant in Second Chronicles 34, it says that he caused uh, all the people to stand by the covenant. That certainly wasn't optional. And so, uh, this verse does not teach um, at all that uh, social covenanting uh, is optional. It's uh, just a mere voluntary act that, uh, that we do not have to participate in. That's not the case. The second uh, uh, objection is found in Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, which, uh, according to this objection, teaches that if we think we might not keep a vow, it is better not to vow at all. That's the way the objection runs. That's not what the passage is teaching. Uh, that verse says, Better... Is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay? And again, let me offer to you a response to this uh, objection. First of all, Solomon is not saying that when it is our obligation to vow, that if we don't think we will probably keep the vow, That we can escape all guilt before God by not vowing at all. That's not what uh, Solomon is saying. When it is our obligation to covenant with God to perform a duty that is required of us in God's moral law, then we are obligated to do so. Uh, Marriage vows. Uh, because uh, we believe before we're married that we might have a lustful thought which is contrary to the vow which we take when we talked about being faithful to our husband and wife. That's contrary to that vow because we think we might somewhere along the line have a lustful thought after we're married. Well, we better not take those marriage vows. See, that's, that's sinful. Uh, well, we are obligated to take Vows even if we think that there is a good possibility that we might break them. Not that we want to, not that we plan on doing so, but that we might do so. We ought yet to take all lawful vows. Uh, or suppose uh, suppose a person as a Christian considers that he is very weak uh, in defending the faith and that he is... Um, and finds himself being uh, afraid uh, in certain circumstances to defend the faith. He needs courage, in other words, to stand for the truth, <clears throat> because he think, thinks he might fail even after he vows or after he enters into a covenant with God, and uh, imploring God to grant him grace, and covenanting with God to be faithful in this area of standing for the truth. As a means of grace, as an added uh, uh, obligation to, uh, upon him to, to be faithful in this area. Uh, should he not enter into such a covenant with God, a personal covenant? Because he thinks, well, there's some I still might blow it. That's not what this verse is teaching. Yes, he ought to. God wants him to enter into that kind of a covenant, uh, particularly if it is an area of weakness. We ought to covenant with God concerning all moral duties and responsibilities, but I think especially when we see that we're weak in a particular area, how much more uh, we ought to enter into a personal covenant in those areas with God. (coughs) Uh, Under the same response, um, second... The purpose of Solomon's words are not to remove from us the duty of swearing to God a vow, but notice, rather to forbid the sin of swearing falsely. That's what this verse is teaching. Don't swear falsely. We are commanded not to sin against God by carelessly making a vow and then forgetting to keep it. That is what Solomon is talking about when he says, Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Third, if it is our duty to covenant with God concerning uh, a moral duty, and yet we see that we are not sincere in our hearts, how do we avoid sinning against God? If we know it's our duty to do and to perform this vow, this covenant, that's our duty. And yet we see we're not sincere. How do we avoid sinning against God? Well, I think that what we ought to do in such a circumstance is that we earnestly plead with God to give us gracious affections and motives so that we might vow sincerely as is our duty. And pay it. We would sin were we to vow without sincerity. That would be a sin. We ought to enter into all of our vows, our covenants with God. With a sincere heart. But we would also sin, listen to this, we would also sin by not vowing at all when it is our duty to do so. Fourth, whatever is a duty in God's law binds us to performance. So we cannot avoid sinning against the Lord if we avoid covenanting and yet fail to fulfill a moral duty. We can't avoid sin. (coughs)
1: Covenanting,
0: dear ones, acknowledges and agrees with God that such is our duty and solemnly invokes the grace of God to fulfill that duty. Okay, the third objection. If we do not personally subscribe the covenants of our ancestors, for example, the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, how can they... Uh, obligate us to obedience if we did not personally if we weren't there when these covenants were sworn and subscribed how can they obligate us uh, three or four hundred years later well we might ask first of all how do they obligate their immediate children because if they obligate anybody else other than those who personally subscribe to the covenant, if they obligate the the children of the covenanters, then basically the same argument holds that they therefore uh, obligate all ancestors of the covenanters. Do they obligate the children of the covenanters? And so the time, the time that lapses has nothing to do with covenant obligations, is what we're saying. That's not the issue. A lot of people think that, that that's a real important factor. That's not an issue at all. The covenant's made with God. and God doesn't live within time. Uh, God uh, is outside of time. A covenant's made with God. That covenant, whether it's the next generation or a thousand generations... Uh, uh, that follow must own that covenant because of who God is. (coughs) So, second uh, under the response uh, secondly only the lawful covenants of ancestors can bind their descendants. Only lawful covenants can bind the uh, descendants. What do I mean by lawful covenants? Uh, Covenants are lawful that bind us to perform the moral law of God or duties that flow from uh, the Ten Commandments. Those are lawful covenants. Unlawful covenants, on the other hand, those are covenants contrary to God's word The unlawful covenants of ancestors have no obligating tie upon descendants. For example, if we bound our descendants to worship God by means of singing all of our uninspired uh, hymns, and uh, I uh, just found one uh, that was handed to me, uh, an uninspired hymn. This is uh, uh, a chorus for the children to sing in a church. Uh, An actual chorus. And uh, this is what this chorus says. Uh, Life without Jesus is like a donut. Like a donut. Like a donut. Life without Jesus is like a donut because there's a hole in the middle of your heart. Now, if we obligate our children... To, to sing that uh, uninspired uh, song. Uh, that would indeed be to bind our children by an unlawful covenant, or anything else contrary to the word of God. Thus, if the content of the covenant... Okay listen closely if the content of the covenant is of moral obligation that is if it is biblical then i am bound by the authority of god not only the lawful authority of rulers if that applies in the circumstance but i am bound by the authority of god because it is god's word that is given that moral law. The third response uh, to this objection, the people of God throughout history in their social or corporate capacity are viewed by God as one moral person rather than as hundreds of thousands of moral persons or individuals. We need to just explain a little bit about this concept of one moral person that is God does not have two or more peoples, two or more brides, two or more churches in history. God has one people, one bride and one church throughout history. In The old covenant under one administration and the new covenant under a different administration. But the people of God in both covenants are one one people, one church. We find this taught, for example, in Romans chapter 11, where you have the olive uh, tree, the natural olive tree, representing uh, the root being the, uh, the fathers of the covenant, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the natural branches being those who are naturally born uh, Israelites. Uh, But due to their unbelief, they are cut off, and those who are grafted into this one tree are those of an unnatural olive tree, the Gentiles. But they are grafted into that same tree. Later on, Paul says, those natural branches will be grafted in, back into that tree when all Israel uh, is called before the Lord returns during the millennial period. And so, one tree. Different time periods throughout history, but one tree. Or we can look at it from the perspective in Galatians chapter 4, where you have the child in the Old uh, Covenant being heir to the promises, and yet not having received those promises until the new covenant when that heir reaches maturity. The New Testament people of God. But one person at different stages of development. One person, though. One moral person. Or you can view it many, many ways that you can, uh, Paul and other writers in the New Testament, present this truth and so I'm just uh, hitting some highlights here or the one commonwealth in Israel in Ephesians 2 one commonwealth in, uh, in Israel and uh, that one commonwealth having been begun in the, in the Old Testament but in the New Testament those who were aliens foreigners, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel are brought in as citizens uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. and So we might say what moral obligations of the law that bind the people of God at one point in history bind the people of God at all points of history subsequently. Since one of the moral obligations placed upon God's people is social covenanting, That is a moral obligation of God's people to covenant socially uh, with God. All lawful covenants sworn by our ancestors do bind us, for we are one person with them. Even if they were in a different nation than we, even if the civil magistrates or the church officers say we're not bound by that covenant, even if every person on earth has abjured or renounced that covenant, it does not change the fact that that covenant continues to bind all uh, subsequent descendants if it is a lawful covenant. Certainly, when we talk about the children being bound by the covenants of the fathers, that's where we started with in this uh, particular objection. We know that uh, that's what the uh, uh, scriptures teach. Uh, Certainly, we would say that uh, Israel viewed the covenants of the fathers binding the children without a doubt. Uh, In Deuteronomy 5.3, that's the case. Uh, in Second Chronicles 34, in many many passages, you find um, uh, the, where it speaks of the covenant made with the fathers, and it thereby yet binding the children. And again, the issue simply is if it binds the immediately successive or descending. Uh, generation, the one immediately following the covenanters, if it binds them, then it legitimately binds all subsequent generations and descendants as well. Why? Because we are one moral person. That is the way God looks at the church. Listen to the words with regard to this, listen to the words of the General Assembly of Scotland. I've got um, about three quotes here. But uh, did they consider an entire General Assembly, General Assembly that uh, that was involved in this covenanted reformation, that owned the Solemn League and Covenant, that owned the National Covenant, <coughs> Listen to the words of, uh, these, um, uh, of, these, of this assembly. Albeit the league and covenant, that's the solemn league and covenant, be despised by that prevailing party in England and the work of uniformity uh, through the retardments and obstructions that have come in the way, be almost forgotten by these kingdoms Yet the obligation of that covenant is perpetual, and all the duties contained therein are constantly to be minded and prosecute by every one of us and our posterity according to their place and stations. And therefore we are no less zealously to endeavor that His Majesty may establish and swear and subscribe the same than if it were unanimously regarded and stuck unto by all the kingdom of, of England, for his Majesty swearing and subscribing the league and covenant will much contribute for the security of religion, his Majesty's happiness and peace of his kingdoms. That's from the Acts of General Assembly, and that's um, Session twenty-seven, uh, July the twenty-seventh, sixteen forty-nine. And an, excuse me, another quote uh, to the same effect, "Although there were none in the one kingdom who did adhere to the covenant, yet thereby were not the other kingdom or any person in either of them absolved from the bond thereof, since in it we have not only sw- sworn by the Lord, this is critical, but also covenanted with Him. It is not the failing of one or more that can absolve others from their duty or tie to Him. Besides, the duties therein contained being in themselves lawful, and the grounds of our tie thereunto moral, though others do forget their duty, yet doth not their defection free us from that obligation which lies upon us by the covenant in our places and stations. And the covenant being intended and entered into by these kingdoms as one of the best means of steadfastness for guarding against declining times, it were strange to say that the backsliding of any should absolve others from the tie thereof especially seeing our engagement therein is not only national, but also personal, everyone with uplifted hands swearing by himself as it is evident by the tenor of the covenant. Again, from the Acts of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, uh, August 6, 1649, the last session. One more quote uh, before we go to the next Objection. <clears throat> Again, from the Acts of General Assembly, the Church of Scotland, August 6, 1649, the last session. From these and other important reasons, it may appear that all these kingdoms joining together to abolish that oath by law, yet could they not dispense therewith? They're saying that if all, the, all of the rulers conspired together, formed different constitutions, different laws, changed everything around. They could not relieve the people of their responsibility. It goes on to say, much less can any one of them or any part of them do the same. The dispensing with oaths hath hitherto been abhorred as anti-Christian and never practiced and avowed by any but by that man of sin Therefore, those who take the same upon them as they join with him in his sin, this is talking about the Pope, uh, talking about popery. those who in the Roman Catholic Church, Jesuits, they believe that you can uh, make false vows and this type of thing if it's going to promote Roman, Roman Catholicism. But the, but the uh, General Assembly says, Therefore, those who take the same upon them As they join with him in his sins, so must they expect to partake of his plagues. You're going to join in with the Pope in his view of covenants, that you can absolve covenants, lawful covenants. Then you're going to partake of his plagues as well. The fourth objection. How can the Solemn League and Covenant, which was sworn in 1643 and then renewed... Um, in uh, subsequent years. How can the Solemn League and Covenant, which was made by the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, bind the United States, Canada, and other nations? Well, first of all, because the Solemn League and Covenant is not only personal, in other words, it not only applies to individuals within the kingdoms, it's not only ecclesiastical that it applies to the church as one moral person, but the solemn league and covenant is also civil. It binds the civil governments of those nations that fall under it as well. It's personal, it's civil, and it's ecclesiastical. Second, under this, uh, the response to this objection, The solemn league and covenant binds all territories, dominions, and commonwealths of Great Britain, even as a lawful covenant of a father binds all his children presently living, as well as those yet to be born. For example, in Malachi 2.10, we find this with regard to the covenants of fathers. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? By profaning the covenant which our fathers have made. And so, As we said earlier, the covenant, a lawful covenant of a father, binds his children, those who are living as well as those who might be born subsequently. Third, the U.S. and Canada are children of Great Britain and are bound by the covenant of their father. For example, the uh, uh, colonies in what is now the United States were English colonies, Uh, they were settled by Englishmen. Uh, they were bound uh, to England. Uh, they considered themselves Englishmen. And in fact, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, their reason for, that they stayed for dissolving that relationship is because they are Englishmen and because their rights as Englishmen have been uh, removed, taken away from them. And so they acknowledge very clearly they were Englishmen. And being Englishmen, they are bound, therefore, by the covenant of their father in Great Britain. And we might say concerning Canada, Canada is yet a Commonwealth country under Great Britain. Uh, the Queen is the Queen of Canada. Uh, she appears on the money, the stamps. <laughs> Uh, and most uh, official documents. Fourth, the changing of laws and constitutions, national boundaries cannot annul the lawful covenants made with God. Because covenants are made with God, because the national boundaries change or a constitution changes, moves from a godly constitution to an immoral constitution, doesn't mean they're not bound by the godly moral constitution that was that was established by their fathers. For as I said earlier, God is the other contracting party in the covenant and he has not changed and he will not change and he will hold a controversy with any nation who would despise a covenant which God has established with that nation. Now, just to illustrate the fact that at the time that these covenants were sworn, they acknowledged that it wasn't only the three kingdoms, but all the majesty's dominions that were bound by the, the, the solemn and covenant. Listen closely to the words again of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. This is June the 4th, 1644. Session 7. Those winds which for a while do trouble the air do withal purge and refine it. And our trust is that through the most wise providence and blessing of God, the truth, by our so long continued agitations, will be better cleared among us. And so our service will prove more acceptable to all the churches of Christ but more especially to you while we have an attentive eye to our peculiar protestation and to that (coughs) public sacred covenant entered into by the kingdoms for uniformity in all his majesty's dominions. (coughs) That was a letter from the Synod of Divines actually Uh, from the Westminster Assembly to the Church uh, of Scotland, to the General Assembly. So that was what all of the divines in Westminster were saying, that the covenants apply in all of His Majesty's dominions. But then I have one quote also from the General Assembly itself to the same effect. Uh, This is uh, again from the Acts of General Assembly. Uh, July 27th, 1649, Session 27. General Assembly says, It doth therefore concern all ranks and conditions of persons to be the most wary and uh, circumspect, especially in that which concerns the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, that before His Majesty speaking of Charles II in this case, that before his majesty be admitted to the exercise of his royal power that by and detour the oath of coronation, he shall assure and declare by his solemn oath under his hand and seal his allowance of the national covenant and of the solemn and covenant and obligation to prosecute the ends thereof in his station and calling and that he shall for himself listen closely and that he shall for himself and his successors consent and agree to acts of parliament in joining the solemn league and covenant and fully establishing presbyterial government the directory of worship the confession of faith and catechism as they are, are approved by the general assembly of this kirk and parliament of this kingdom In all His Majesty's dominions, and that He shall never make opposition to any of these, nor endeavor any change thereof. Seems very clear that it was contemplated by those who swore it, and it bound all of His Majesty's dominions. Any territories or dominions related to those three kingdoms, <coughs> which certainly involve the United States and uh, Canada, and any other Commonwealth nation, we might say, any other nation subsequently related to Great Britain?
2: <coughs>
0: the fifth objection. How can covenants sworn by entire nations and their lawful representatives be subsequently sworn or subscribed or renewed by a minority of that people without its federal representatives? If it was entered into as a nation with the civil magistrates, with the church, uh, the entire church all subscribing to it, how can subsequently a very small minority of people renew a covenant that was a national covenant or wasn't even an international covenant as was the solemn league and covenant uh, the response that i would offer would be this the national covenant and the solemn league and covenant bind all the people within the covenanted nations i mentioned to you that it's not only national or civil it's not only ecclesiastical but i mentioned it's personal as well okay it binds all the people as individuals within those nations as well. Not just the civil rulers or ecclesiastical officers. Second, since the faithful within a nation are bound by the covenants of their forefathers, they may renew their obligations contained within that covenant. Those obligations that pertain to them as being individuals they may renew their obligations that are found in that particular covenant. Third, since God is the other party in the covenant, they may renew their covenant with God even if the majority do not join them since it's God that they have covenanted with. They may renew that covenant with God. Fourth, it is not to be viewed as a national covenant renewal. In other words, when a minority does renew covenant, we ought not to view that as a covenant renewal of the whole nation, however, but rather a renewing of a national covenant by a minority. See, the national covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, are, it, it is a national covenant and an international covenant, but it is being renewed by a, a, mon- a minority of the faithful, of the remnant. The sixth objection. How can the covenants be renewed when the historical circumstances stated within the National Covenant and the solemn Legan Covenant are quite different than uh, from uh, events and circumstances of today? For example, <coughs> today... Uh, well at least those in the United States could say we don't have a monarchy. Uh, in Canada, um, uh, in, I suppose I'm not sure exactly how they would describe the form of government here. Uh, they do have a queen that they do acknowledge but, uh, but uh, yet they uh, also have a prime minister, they have a parliament, uh, but certainly in the United States uh, they would say well we don't have a monarchy today, that's certainly different. Um, uh, we might also say circumstances are different uh, then, as opposed to today, that we don't have any acknowledged. No, we don't have any nation acknowledging themselves, owning uh, a, co- a national covenant. There are no covenanted nations that are owning the covenants today. That's different from uh, from when this, the uh, covenants were sworn in the Second Reformation. Uh, Another difference, there are no faithful parliaments as there was in those times. There's no faithful national churches as there were in those times. So there are some differences as to history, circumstances that are different now than were uh, in those days. What how do we respond to these differences? because we we do find within the covenants these particular things stated, uh, these kinds of historical circumstances. We would say that which is owned by us as binding upon us as individuals are not the particular historical circumstances of those covenants, but the moral duties contained within those covenants, which is perpetual. And we would say even if uh, uh, the civil government were to be constructed differently uh, than it was in those particular days, say you had, instead of a monarchy, a uh, uh, constitutional republic, uh, something of that nature, um, it would not not prevent a nation from still owning that covenant. uh, And... uh, uh, And seeing that the obligation, if the monarch has changed to, a, uh, if the king has been changed to a president, the parliament has been changed to a congress, it does not uh, materially alter uh, the the nature of the covenant. It's simply a, a historical circumstance that's been changed. A nation still could own that covenant and should own that covenant. But we as individuals, we would say, again, the, those historical circumstances do not prevent us from owning the moral equity of that covenant. Anything that's moral that pertains to me or to you as, uh, as uh, uh, believers, as Christians, as our moral obligation, we ought to own from those covenants. The seventh objection. What about churches that refuse to own and renew these covenants today? What do we what do we say? What do we think uh, 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 concerning churches that refuse to own or renew these covenants? Well, first of all, uh, all churches within the territories or dominions of Great Britain, past, present, or future, are under perpetual obligation and particular obligation to these national covenants. And all churches within those territories or dominions are under obligation to own the moral equity of those covenants. Second, all Presbyterian churches Bear an especial obligation to these covenants, for they are Presbyterian covenants. Now, all, as we said, all churches within the dominions of Great Britain are bound by those covenants, but especially those who call themselves Presbyterians, who trace their heritage back to England, Scotland, and Ireland and the Second Reformation, are especially bound by these covenants. That obligation is even stronger upon them because they very distinctly say those are our fathers. Third, churches that know of these covenants, and I would again say especially Presbyterian churches, and yet reject or do not subscribe them, are twice as culpable of covenant breaking as those who do not know of them. Those churches that know of them and yet do not own them, but reject them, they are twice as culpable. All churches are culpable because it is a moral obligation. But those who know of the covenants and do not do so are even more Culpable. It's like what Jesus said that that the uh, servant uh, who knew to do the master's will and didn't do it is more culpable than the servant uh, who did not know to do the master's will. A greater responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. Fourth. Uh, Comment under this objection. Such covenant breaking is grounds for separation from such an ecclesiastical uh, institution and not owning the lawfulness of their courts or ministers. It's grounds for separation from and not owning the lawfulness of their courts or ministers. For you see, what is true of civil courts, if we cannot own the civil courts of a nation that does not own and subscribe these covenants that they are bound by, if we cannot own the civil uh, courts of this nation because they have rejected, they do not own uh, the obligations of the Solemn League and Covenant, we cannot therefore own the ecclesiastical courts. Of a of a church that do not own their obligations to the solemnly covenant. <clears throat> and then the last objection: How should we view civil magistrates within covenanted nations like the United States and Canada who have not subscribed these lawful national covenants? How should we we, uh, view civil magistrates, uh, the civil courts, the parliaments, congresses, in these lands? Well, we should view them as having, again, no lawful authority to rule for the covenants state that the people, the covenants themselves state that the people are to honor and defend The person of the civil magistrate of these nations so long as the civil magistrate promotes and defends the true Reformed religion as found within the covenants, as found within the confession of faith and catechism and directory for public worship in form of government. And we read just earlier, Charles II was not permitted to exercise his regal authority until he had sworn the covenants. Now, he swore them deceitfully and insincerely, but they would not admit him until he had sworn them. Uh, they certainly didn't know. I think that many of them suspected that it was not a sincere uh, uh, swearing to these covenants. Um, but uh, much, much pain and heartache followed because they were not more careful in this particular case with Charles II. And likewise, we may not swear allegiance, just as they could not swear allegiance to Charles II until he had sworn the covenants because they, he was bound by them. You see, the king and in the, in the parliament and the congress are not above the law of God. They're not above the covenant. They're under the covenant. They're under the law of God. And just as the the faithful within England, Ireland, and Scotland could not swear allegiance to Charles II, neither can we swear allegiance to our civil magistrates or to the civil magistrates of these these nations. So long as they (coughs) repudiate, so long as they abjure, renounce, reject, do not own these covenants. Which again means that we must dissent from the civil government. We cannot uh, involve ourselves therefore uh, while this is the case in voting for um, uh, civil magistrates or for various uh, uh, positions in the civil government because those who uh, serve in those capacities are simply going to be swearing uh, their allegiance to an immoral constitution. And so we're putting them into a place of power and authority, those who own an immoral constitution. We cannot ourselves, if we ourselves cannot do a swear allegiance, we cannot put into power those who will swear allegiance. Now, this is not sedition see Jeremiah was accused of being seditious as well when uh, he spoke on behalf of God and he said uh, to the people of Israel because of the rebellion uh, you better submit to Nebuchadnezzar they rebelled they wouldn't listen and uh, they were broken they were sent into captivity but The people thought that Jeremiah was seditious because he was speaking contrary to the government, to the state. He was not being seditious. He was being faithful to the word of God, to the law of God. This is not sedition. This is recognizing simply the superior authority of this land. The superior authority of this land is God. God. The supreme law of this land is the word of God as articulated in the covenants. Therefore, in conclusion, we do not promote anarchy. We do not promote anarchy. We submit to all lawful commands at this time that the civil magistrate is immoral and uh, wicked as the civil magistrate may be. We submit Uh, by uh, complying with all lawful commands meaning that they are uh, agreeable to the word of God but we cannot recognize the lawful authority of the civil magistrate we cannot recognize his lawful authority we do not submit out of conscience to, to him as being a lawful ruler we submit out of conscience to God because if it is a lawful command, it finds its authority from God. And so, covenanters are not troublemakers. Uh, covenanters are not out to uh, to uh, the, as a first uh, resort to take up arms and to. Uh, to overthrow uh, the civil magistrate we would say that certainly that uh, it should always be our goal to by the means that God provides first of all by moral persuasion by the word of God by the preaching of the truth to overthrow a wicked and immoral government that should always be the case We're not simply asking for a few changes here and there. That's not the goal. The goal is to see a righteous government established. And so uh, we must therefore uh, be praying for the overthrow of this present uh, government and the establishment of a righteous government. Are the use of arms ever um, permissible Yes, they are permissible. We ought to defend ourselves. But we ought not, again, to defend ourselves foolishly. Uh, we ought to uh, uh, use prudence and wisdom uh, in, in any action we take of this nature. But this is, again, not something that's forbidden to God's people as a means of defense. And if ever in the future there is sufficient um Numbers, a majority uh, to actually overthrow a, a wicked government in any land, then it is within the uh, the lawful means of a uh, of Christians in that circumstance and situation to overthrow a tyrant. In those circumstances, it is biblical and it is in fact a duty. If we have the means and we do not use the means, to overthrow a wicked tyrant, then we are held responsible for not doing so. So there is a place and a time. Certainly, I don't think this is the place and time. Uh, we, uh, we have uh, much growth. We have much learning, teaching, and propagating of the truth to do. And uh, so uh, let no one misunderstand. Uh, we're not promoting uh, a military revolution uh, at uh, at this time at all. Uh, we have much, much work to do. But if someone says that a military revolution is never uh, requisite or never a duty of a righteous people, I believe they're speaking contrary to the word of God. Okay. That's uh, all that I have as far as objections. And um, I would uh, give you an opportunity if you have questions or comments to uh uh, to to ask uh, them at this time. Anything that's come to your mind, something that you think... I didn't, again, present <coughs> all of the uh, objections that I've heard, but uh, the most common ones that I've heard. Yes, Larry?
1: Should I speak up so you don't have to repeat the question?
0: Well, <coughs> speak in that tone and you'll, you'll get on the tape.
1: Okay. Um, I had a talk recently with a fellow, actually a minister, who... Uh, when I made a distinction that you made uh, between the circumstantials and the essentials or the, the matter of the covenant uh, and therefore we can still be bound by the latter even if the former change he denied that distinction as I'm sure he would probably do with you at this point would to hear uh, what you had said so I was wondering um, you know, he might say something like well it's fine for you to make those distinctions but you're simply mistaken no mm-hmm. biblical grounds for doing so. Uh, seamless garment—you take—you uh, know, you can't cut off what isn't convenient to your position. So, could you elaborate and press that on further?
0: Sure. Um, I would simply uh, offer, by way of biblical uh, response, that um, the people of God in the Old Testament, bound by the covenant which they made with God, were still bound by the covenant. Um, uh, though they were removed to a foreign nation, to a foreign land, uh, to Babylon, Assyria, to, to the various nations, they were scattered and dispersed. But the covenant didn't cease to, to bind them wherever they were scattered. Even though they were now no longer under the same civil government, no longer under the same constitution, the the uh, the matter and the moral equity of that covenant still bound them. To, uh, to the duties contained therein. Uh, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, uh, Rome ruled over the, uh, uh, the land of Palestine, over uh, Israel at that time. Um, were they no longer bound by the, the covenants that their fathers made simply because Rome ruled? Of course not. uh, If you read, uh, certainly in the Gospels, and if you read in the Epistles, you find again and again references to the fact that they're bound uh, by the covenants of their fathers. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, I think, clearly teaches that the covenant made with Abraham uh, continues to bind uh, succeeding generations even to uh, uh, that particular time in which uh, they lived. <clears throat> and uh, and so likewise, uh, I would say, uh, would this would this uh, uh, pastor, this minister, say that we're not bound by the moral equity contained in the in the covenants which our forefathers made, uh, meaning the forefathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Are we not bound, even though we're under a different? Um, uh, form of government than they were and uh, if he's willing to admit that we're not bound by the moral equity of that covenant though in a different geographical political kind of situation then I think he has basically abjured uh, any responsibility and duty for owning the uh, uh, the, the commandments uh, we find uh, throughout uh, the, uh, the Old Testament
1: well actually he did say that uh, no, he would not deny that. In fact, he believes that all of the, what is morally put forth, put forth as moral duty in the covenants themselves of Scotland and the three nations are binding on us. What he's objecting to is not the matter, but the sanction, that we can be bound um, by the covenant as a covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Are you or are you saying in your answer as well that we are bound mm-hmm. uh, not only by the matter as in the moral duty of the covenants with the forefathers of Israel but also by way of the sanction
0: Sure I
1: think uh, uh, doesn't Brown say be a on and be matter each other
0: well, why don't, you, why don't you go ahead, uh, by, when you say by the matter, by the uh, sanction, why don't you elaborate? You know, just to...
1: Well, I, just what you said earlier in your talk, that mm-hmm. whether or not anybody ever made a covenant to keep the Ten Commandments, for example, they're still bound by the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. But when there is some sort of covenantal obligation super added to that, mm-hmm. they're bound in two ways, mm-hmm. uh, by the essential duties of the commandment, as well as by the sanction of the covenant. And so in the same way, this minister would say, yes, we're bound to abjure or reject or whatever, prelacy and, mm-hmm. and the various things that are said in the solemnly in covenant. But he, at this point, is contending that it is possible for us to be bound by them as in the sanction mm-hmm. of those covenants. Again, for the reason that I said, because it's a seamless garment, you'd have to be bound by all the circumstances as well, which would bind yourself to their form of judgment. So,
0: Right. Um, but again, I would say that uh, uh, both of those, the, the, uh, the moral equity as well as the sanction uh, applies, uh, though the historical circumstances have changed. We can still, I, I don't see how we can make that kind of distinction from the covenants in the Bible as opposed to the solemn league and covenant and any other covenant, uh, I think that you know uh, the covenanter position is arguing uh, exactly the same position that we would argue with regard to the, all the biblical covenants.
1: How then do you avoid the um, oppressive <coughs> absurdity of having almost an infinite number of covenants? Because I've also heard the challenge that we're being arbitrary in choosing these two covenants. Certainly, mm-hmm. uh, I'm of German descent, uh, part of my ancestry, and I'm sure that somewhere along the line, if you go back far enough, um, I will be bound by some sort of, at least, familial covenant. I think my ancestors go back to the Waldenes, <coughs> so why not find that one out? And, you know, mm-hmm. Pretty soon you could uh, make it into just this agonizing. Uh, Search that would never settle your conscience because there could always be some sort of covenant outstanding that you're not recognizing.
0: Well, I would say that again for two or three reasons. We we uh, have selected uh, the these two covenants. First of all, because um, we are part of that covenanted nation uh, of Ireland, England, and Scotland, Canada, the United States. That's number one. We are part. We're covenanted nations. Uh, Covenanted uh, yet breaking covenant. Um, uh, second, um, I would say that uh, those covenants are, are the height of attainment in covenanting: uh, the the solemn league and covenant and the national covenant. So uh, historically, um, they have reached that particular place. Uh, just like most, again, in in the, um, in the ecclesiastical world. Um, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Standards are acknowledged to be uh, the most articulate uh, standards, having reached the uh, the highest attainment in in, uh, uh, in biblical confessions and creeds. Uh, and thirdly, I believe that um, that all previous covenants, in all previous covenants that have uh, uh, confessions and creeds and covenants that have been faithful, have been um, uh, realized, summarized, um, that you can find them within uh, the, the, those covenants, uh, the, the Solemn League and Covenant, National Covenant. And so I'd say for those three reasons that we ought to and rightfully view these covenants as having particular significance to us, even though, again, we would say that the moral equity of all uh, covenants. Um, uh, in whatever nation the moral equity of those covenants uh, again if it's agreeable to the word of God we would say that that's that's binding upon us uh, it obliges us but we may not again be bound specifically by them if it, if, if it is a covenant within uh, you know say in Germany or some other country we may not specifically be bound because we don't live in Germany we do live in Canada
1: but some of us descend from that stock
0: Right, right. And so, again, in that particular sense, uh, I think that you would be uh, bound by the uh, the moral equity uh, uh, of that particular covenant.
1: But you're saying that that moral equity is subsumed and restated in the other covenants that were recognized. Right, yeah. Is there some biblical support for that um, idea of, <coughs> of subsequent it. covenants sort of swallowing up and
0: re-expressing prior covenants? Um. Well, certainly as, as you, you know, look through redemptive history, I think that you see um, the, uh, 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 the, uh, as far as the, the covenant of grace uh, certainly moving in that direction, beginning with a more simple uh, type of covenant with, uh, uh, with Adam after the fall and then Noah and Abraham and then Moses and David and to Christ. So you see that uh, that uh, development uh, of uh, historically the covenant. So I think that, that uh, until we see it all realized in the new covenant uh, uh, that, uh, and I think that we see historically, uh, not that there can't be any improvements upon the national covenant or the solemn and covenant. Uh, we do pray that there will be uh, national churches and nations covenanted in the future in which there may be uh, by God's mercy and grace uh, even improvements on that covenant. But at this particular point, this appears to be the height of attainment in in, in confessions and covenants. There.
1: I might risk being impertinent here, but I do know that this term, at this point, of the terms of communion is probably going to be the most hotly contested. So, I, for the benefit of whoever is listening to the tape, um, it could be said that in Israel, you had. <coughs> uh, the church was under leadership that could take uh, a covenant on behalf of that church or behalf of that nation uh, that was manageable, for lack of a better word, whereas now the leaders of the Church of Scotland are the leaders of the Church of Scotland. They're not the leaders of the church that would have existed in um, you know, South Africa. Think, think of some non-British, uh, some country in Africa or something like that that has nothing to do with Scotland. In other words, the church was. You might have to help me try and streamline this question, but the church was uh, nationally confined to Israel in mm-hmm. the Old Covenant. So, if their ecclesiastical leaders made a covenant, they could make it on behalf of the entire church. But now we have. One little branch of the church, Scotland, whereas the visible church is universal uh, in these gospel ages. So, how can we say it's binding on the moral person when they could, since they weren't the leaders of the entire church visible in the world at that time, they couldn't make a covenant for the entire visible church in the world at that time? You see what I'm saying?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that again, the um, two, two uh, concepts, I think, are, are really critical. Uh, first of all, that <clears throat> the covenant is, um, is made with God. God is not uh, confined to a nation. God is not confined to a particular geographical area. God is, is the ruler uh, of, uh, of the whole world. Uh, rules through his, uh, through his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, um, the visible church. Uh, and and uh, the second concept is that the, um, uh, the, the covenant, uh, though made in a particular church, um, is binding upon the moral person of the whole church. Uh, because, uh, because of the, the nature of the matter that is covenanted. It's of uh, any lawful covenant is made with God. And uh, second of all, the content of the uh, covenant is moral. It's a duty. It binds uh, all people. So uh, because of those two things, uh, no matter if it is confined to one particular uh, so-called expression, the moral equity of that covenant does bind all churches. For example, the um, the Church of Holland at that particular time was not um, was not bound by the um, by uh, all the historical circumstances of that particular covenant. Um, they did not take, uh, though they had. Uh, expressed a willingness to enter into the solemn league and covenant with those three nations. They had not done so. But the point is they did see themselves bound by the moral equity of that covenant nevertheless. and yeah, but
1: There's a difference between mm-hmm. being bound by the moral equity which is the, simply the duty therein contained right. and being bound by way of superadded obligation which is in fact what covenant is against
0: well the point is that uh, that, that uh, was not a commonwealth was not a territory or dominion of his majesty or the parliament but all of those dominions and territories that did fall under the jurisdiction of of england ireland and scotland again were bound not only as to not only as to the moral equity but in the in the in the added way as you just described but not holland not france not other nations
1: so you wouldn't necessarily say that a nation today that has had no ecclesiastical or national descent from these covenanting nations were automatically no lawfully constituted church because they had uh, not recognized a covenantal obligation would you?
0: No, I wouldn't say that that automatically puts them outside of a... Uh of a uh, lawfully constituted church if they reject the moral equity of that covenant I think that that would certainly put them outside of the the, uh, 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 realm of a lawfully constituted church but if they are truly reformed uh, they have a national church they're truly reformed um, uh, or even if they don't have a national church but they're just an independent uh, congregation maybe much like ourselves in another part of the world not bound by specific the, the specifics of, of this covenant um, but yet acknowledge the, the moral equity of it. I would say that yes we could recognize them uh, as being uh, lawfully constituted. Okay. Any others? All right, we'll stop there then.
2: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. t 6 l 3T5 You may also request a free printed catalogue. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to His commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves